As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures, we ask that you would deal bountifully with your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are our delight. By Christ's spirit, may they be our counselors now. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series in the Song of Solomon in the evening, and we've come to chapter 5, verse 2 in our series. So we want to begin our reading there. Uh, You'll find that on page 716 of many of our Pew Bibles. Uh, It's between the books of Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. Um, So Song of Solomon, we want to begin our reading at uh, chapter 5, verse 2, and we'll read through chapter 6, verse 3, and that'll be our text for this evening. So the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, beginning our reading at verse 2, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem." Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. 
Well, as we've been considering this psalm together, or this song together, and its wisdom for how to love, we've sort of tracked these two people together through the song, and the last time they got married, and there was the consummation of the marriage, and we considered that last time, Um, and so we might be tempted to think, or someone might be tempted to think, maybe not you, that if we've gone through this to this point, and they've They've had the struggles before they got married, and now they've come together to be married. What more is there to say about love? Haven't we already reached the consummation point of this relationship? Uh, is there more to say? Right? We, we went through that struggle of their lives apart and how they longed for each other, and now they've finally come together, and so shouldn't that be the end of the story? They fell in love, they got married, and they lived happily ever after, right? The end. Um, and so there's the, but the song doesn't end there, right? We're only sort of uh, just over the halfway point, in a sense, of, of the psalm and thinking about these things. And it's because wisdom is needed for love beyond just marriage, right? If we're going to have wisdom of how to love, the Bible is dealing with real life. Um, and it might be in books or in movies that once the people come together and get married, the credits roll and that's the end of the story. But we know in real life that's not the end of the story. Uh, There still is more wisdom that's needed. Uh, The Bible is dealing with wisdom for real life. It's acknowledging that marriage is a wonderful blessing from the Lord, but it doesn't mean that marriage and married life don't bring with them troubles and challenges of their own. Uh, There's a, a book I have on marriage called, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. And on the back cover of the book, probably to help it sell copies, uh, it says, somehow, some way, every marriage becomes a struggle. Um, and that probably is intended to sell copies because that's a reality of life. There are problems that come. And the author speaks in the book about his own missteps in marriage and how he and his wife have had to learn to deal with those things. Uh, in the preface, he says this about himself and his marriage. He says, my wife and I have not arrived. We are still being rescued by God's wisdom and grace. We wish we could say that the war of love is over in our marriage, but we can't. Love of self still gets in the way of love for God and for one another. And when it does, our marriage suffers. As long as we are two sinners living in a fallen world, there will be work to do. And we recognize that, don't we? That the work is not over once you get married. Um, certain dangers and temptations are, are over for couples before they get married. They're the dangers that you face in the single life or in the engaged life, the, the troubles, the temptations, the, the challenges are, are not the same, but there are new ones that come with marriage. Um, and I like how we put that. Love of self gets in the way. Love of self gets in the way of how we should love God, how we should love other people. Um, Another commentator said, the problem we have is that much of the time we live relentlessly self-focused lives. Um, And that becomes problematic in marriage because it reveals that we are self-focused when we need to be focused on the other person. Um, And that's not limited to the marriage relationship, isn't it? Or is it? What am I saying? Is it? Um, No, it's not limited, right? It's not limited to the marriage relationship. In every relationship we have problems where our self-love interferes with how we should be relating to other people. Um, And I like that point that when we focus on loving ourselves and lose sight of the loves that are supposed to be ordered in terms of God and of our neighbor, relationships, whatever they are, suffer. 
right? When we forget to love God the way we ought to, we begin to feel distant and isolated from him. When we fail to love other people as we ought, it distances us from them. Uh, We begin to feel this distance and this uh, alienation from them. Um, And I think what what the author of the Song of Solomon is doing here for us is reminding us of that, the way that our loves can get out of sync and disordered, and the trouble that causes uh, by way of what we read here in the song. We have another, really another kind of dreamlike state like we had before. Maybe even as I read it, you remembered back to another kind of dreamlike state that the, that the wife had and, and going out into the city and going searching. It's a similar theme, another kind of dreamlike state here. Um, and just like dreams, there are lots of things that are difficult to understand and difficult to, to explain through. Um, one person said, we have here a host of unexplained situations, bizarre events, and sudden shifts in action. Uh, but I think what we can say for certain about this is this is a picture of love getting out of sync and the heartache that has gone it goes on before restoration is, is come to. But I think ultimately this is a picture of hope. It's dealing with the reality that sometimes love gets out of sync in the way it's expressed, but holds out to us that the hope of God for these things coming back together, that disordered love can be healed by God. And even though there is heart sickness that, that follows the, when we get out of sync and when we get in these kind of disordered loves, There is hope of recovery and remedy in our God and in his grace. And so that's, I think, what we'll see in these verses. Um, I think it's a picture first of frustrated desires. um, And then we see this fruitless search that's being engaged in. And then there's a final recovery that's held out to us at the end. And that's how we want to think about these verses together. A picture of frustrated desires, a fruitless search, and a final recovery. Um, I think, again, we're being confronted with another dreamlike state in chapter 5, verse 2. It's actually kind of the good way to describe uh, dreaming. I slept, but my heart was awake. Uh, We can be conscious in our sleep. Isn't that a strange sort of thing to have happen? Uh, It's amazing how the Lord has made our minds and how our brains can work. Um, oftentimes as a pastor you get in trouble because your mind is doing things where you're supposed to be saying things and you get out of sync from what you should be doing and you have to kind of slow down and let your thoughts catch up. It's amazing how God has given us these brains that can do multiple things. And one of the really interesting things about how our brains work is how we can be asleep and be having these, these conscious thoughts that we're very aware of. And that seems to be what's happening here. Uh, we had a dreamlike state before, we mentioned that, where there was another kind of search that she went on. She had a dream where they were, they were supposed to be in bed together and he was gone. And she was wondering where he was and had to go out and search for him um, because he was not where he was supposed to be. And we said they weren't married yet at that point, but that's how dreams work. They have things that we know are true but aren't right. right? You can have a dream where you know you're back in high school. Maybe it's a nightmare for you, depending on how high school was. But you can have that dream, right? I'm back in high school. It looks nothing like my real high school, but I know in the dream that's where I am. Um, We can have that, right, where our dream is telling us something that we know is not exactly right with reality, but we're really aware of what's going on, what's happening. Um, Or you can be in the dream and know really that you're late for something or that you're searching for something. Um, 
And you know that that's the way dreams work. There can be things that happen that you're certain of in the dream, but are not necessarily coordinated with reality. And I think that's what we have going on here. This is a different kind of scenario than the dream she had before. In the former dream, she woke up and her husband that she expected to be with her was gone. And that's what prompted her to go searching. This is a different kind of dream in that he's not gone, he's very much present, right? He's, he's there. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. It's almost like she's in their marital bedroom and he's outside the door knocking. Um, he's knocking, asking for her to let him in. Uh, he's not missing this time, he's very much present. Um, we could really say this translation could be he's banging on the door. He's knocking like the police. Um, he really wants to be let in. That's, that's the image that's being conveyed here. And the descriptions that he states from outside the door uh, pile up the descriptions. Um, he, he talks about her in a way that he doesn't talk about her anywhere else in the song. There are four descriptions of her piled up together. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Uh, there are names for her that convey the intimacy of their relationship. There are names that convey to her the beauty that he, that, that he has for her, that he holds her in this kind of esteem. There are wonderful words of intimacy and beauty that he uses with her. And there's really just one request that he has. Open to me. Right now it's clear here that it's not just the door he wants open to him. Right? It's, it's the marital bed. It's, it's being together in every sense of the word. He wants her, as one person put it, to open her will, her body, and her being to him. And even though he's, he's banging on the door, this is, not, this is not the urgency of demand. It's the urgency of desire. He's entreating her with great tenderness in the midst of this urgency. But the extent of his desire for her is really palpable in these verses. Um, and that's what makes what she does run seemingly so counter to everything we've read in this song. But if we're going to summarize the song it, to this point, it might be she really loves him and he really loves her, right? That's the way you strip down poetry to its, you know, base elements. Uh, this is why no one's asking me to write a song about this, right? If you stripped it way down, it would be he really loves her and she really loves him. Um, he really desires her. She really desires him. That's, that's been the revolving theme around the song. So what she does is so surprising here. What does she say to him when he comes with this earnest entreaty, this desire for her? Uh, her response is in sharp contrast to his desire. Um, she had said before, you know, I'm, I'm sick with love for him. And now what does she say? But I'm already all ready for bed. I already put my PJs on. I took my bath. I can't be troubled to now get up and cross and open the door. I'm all set here. I'm all, I'm all ready for bed. That's essentially what she's saying. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Right? I, it's a sort of surprising turn of events in this song. Um, it's a surprising turn of events that this is what she would say to him. It sounds very ordinary. Right? And it's 
and it's transmitting what relationships can be like. Um, But it's very surprising in the context of this love song to have her react this way. Because it seems like all of that burning love that she has for him has been replaced by bored indifference in this moment. You're there, but I, I really can't be troubled to get out and cross the room and open the door. Um, it's a very strange thing to have happen. It's a hard thing for people to explain. Uh, the commentators vary wildly differently on how they explain this. Um, there's all sorts of things that they try to to try to explain what's going on here. I think a lot of the explanations kind of fall short. I think at the end of the day, the best explanation is this is the way dreams work. Um, you know, we know that our dreams are a manifestation of our subconscious, but we're not, we say it that way because we know we're not always consciously doing things in our dreams. There are times where something's happening in a dream and you don't know why. Right? You have a dream, you know you're looking for something. You don't know why you're looking for it. Um, you're late for something. You don't know why you're late. You just are aware of that in the dream. Um, I don't think there's exactly an explanation as to why she doesn't want to cross to him. Maybe in her subconscious, this is a worry or a fear that is back there somewhere. What if this burning love that we have for each other burns out over time? Um, What if there comes a moment that I don't want him as much as he wants me? Uh, Her response does not daunt her husband. His love for her is still burning. And it's a passing kind of thing for her. This this kind of indifference doesn't last. In fact, the fact that he continues to have the same love for her encourages her. My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved. My hands were dripping with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. It passes, and his desire for her seems to awaken in her a desire for him. It seems to be rekindled, and with great urgency, she goes to open the door to him. And what does she find when she opens the door? That he's gone. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called to him, I called him, but he gave no answer. Uh, She opens the door and he's not there. Um, He's gone. It's almost too much disappointment for her to bear. There's a huge weight of disappointment in that statement. My soul failed me. My soul failed me when I opened the door and found him gone, that my beloved had turned and gone. Um, My soul failed me when he spoke. It might be better translated, my soul failed me at his flight, uh, that he was gone. It's left her utterly deflated. Um, And this starts in this sort of fruitless search then for him. Uh, She goes out after him. Right, That initial indifference, that temporary indifference to him, turns into this desperate searching for him. 
Uh, she opens the door and doesn't find him there and doesn't stop there. Um, I called, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. This is almost an exact inversion of what the husband had done with her. He called, he sought, and said, open. And she opens and sought and called. Um, she's doing sort of the same thing in reverse order. But her search for him ends up being as fruitless as his knocking to her was. And she says, I sought, but I didn't find. I called, but I didn't answer. She now wants what he wanted, to be with him in every sense of the word, but because their same desire was not synchronized, they're left separated. They're left apart from one another. She's left alone. Um, It's a reminder to us as we think about wisdom to love that problems in relationships don't necessarily arise because two people don't want the same thing. They can arise because they don't want the same thing at the same time in the same way. Um, And this is not limited to marriage, right? We can get out of sync with other people as well. Um, We can think of this even in spiritual terms. That The Bible calls us to seek the Lord while he may be found. To call upon him while he's near. Um, And... Jesus told the Pharisees, as we talked about before, he says, there's a day you'll seek me and you will not find me. Right? Even in spiritual terms, there's a day of salvation that's today. The call that we should seek the Lord while he may be found. With the implication, because there may be a day that you realize you need the Lord, but it's too late. You seek the Lord and then you won't find him. You recognize his lordship, but it's too late. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But it's going to be starkly different for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, as he called us to do, and those who refused him. It's going to be a very different kind of kneeling and a very different kind of confessing, and it'll lead to a different kind of glory. Not the glory of God revealed in his salvation to sinners, but the glory of God revealed in the judgment of the wicked. And it's that call, right, not to be found out of step or out of sync, uh, to seek the Lord while he may be found. Um, We recognize how these things can be the right thing at the wrong time. People will seek the Lord, but it will be too late. And the call is to seek the Lord while he may be found, so that we might enjoy fellowship and life with him. Um, We can have these things get out of sync and out of step. And when they do, the wisdom that she shows is to go out and try to put it back in its proper order. Um, She's very admirable, this woman in the song, for never being the kind of person to throw her hands up and say, what am I going to do? Right, this, this disordered situation that she probably felt intensely that she was responsible for. Uh, she now goes out and seeks to put a right. She goes earnestly seeking for her husband. But this search is much more desperate, much more difficult than the search she went on in the previous dream. It was a difficult search then too. She went out into the city in the dream looking for her beloved, and she goes out the same way here, and she meets again the watchmen of the city. Uh, She encountered them before. 
on relatively good terms. She encountered the watchman of the city in the previous dream, but they didn't say anything to her. She sought from them, where is my beloved? Have you seen him? And they, they said nothing in the dream. Uh, they didn't help her, but they didn't hinder her. And they certainly don't hurt her the way that they didn't hurt her the way they do in this part of the dream. Uh, now they beat her without a word. Uh, they take off her veil. That's a kind of ironic twist on one of her fears from earlier in the song. Uh, she was worried about being mistaken for a harlot. And that's sort of what it seems like they've done, tearing off her veil. Um, earlier she couldn't be troubled to put on a robe to answer the door. Now her veil is torn away. It's the realization of her fears from earlier in the book, being mistaken for a prostitute while out looking for her beloved. Now even though her motives are pure, she's treated like something bad. And as things happen in the dream, um, suddenly the daughters of Jerusalem appear around her. Um, that's what we have in verse 8, this appearance of the daughters of Jerusalem. Um, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. She finds these other women that she's been uh, dialoguing with in the song, and they are here. That's the way things can work in a dream. Don't ask where they came from. They show up. That can happen in a dream, right? And she's talking to them, and, and she has a message for them. Right? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I am sick with love. Um, tell him I shouldn't have sent him away, that I wish I didn't send him away. And now that we're apart, I'm sick with love on account of it. Um, and, these, and these others, these, these daughters of Jerusalem, they ask her interesting questions, don't they? This, this plea for him and this, this desire to find him. And they sort of say, well, you know, why should we search for him? What makes him so great? Right? What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? You're out searching around the middle of the night. Why should we go do that? Um, what makes him so great? And that's really the wonderful picture that we have here. Um, it be, it's sort of the beginning of her recovery um, that happens in this passage, the final recovery that begins with her recounting to them why she loves him and what makes him so wonderful. Right? So it's the perfect setup for the song, right? For, her, for her, them to say to her, what's so wonderful about him? Um, the Tonys are on. I don't know my musical theater very well, but I bet there's a musical where somebody says, well, what makes that person so great? And they break forth into song about what makes a person so great. You can tell me later um, which, which musical I should be thinking of and I'm not. Um, but it's sort of this opportunity, right, for her to sing his praises, and she does so in a wonderful way. What makes your beloved so wonderful? What makes him so much better than other beloveds? And she sort of says, well, let me tell you. And she begins with this beautiful and complete description of him. She moves from his head to his feet. She moves from sights to scents to taste. She moves from metaphors in nature to metaphors for building and for architecture to capture his strength and his stature. Um, in every way, she talks about what's wonderful about him. Um, she talks about beautiful sights. His appearance is radiant and ruddy. He's healthy and vigorous. 
He's distinguished from 10,000. That's a sign of military prowess. He's a warrior. His head is pure gold. His hair is raven black. His eyes are like doves, just like hers. Right? Dark and perfect white. Beautiful sights, wonderful scents. His face is like sweet-smelling spices. Delicious tastes. His lips are aromatic to her kisses. And she moves from metaphors then to metaphors of building and architecture. His arms are rods of gold covered with jewels. This is not a physical description. Right? If your arms are yellow and covered with colored spots, you might want to see a doctor about that. That's not what she's saying. It's not a physical description. What is that a, an expression of its value? Right? Your arms are gold covered with jewels. That's the immensity of his value to her. His stomach and chest are like plates of ivory covered in lapis lazuli. His legs are alabaster pillars with bases of pure gold. He's statuesque. And what is the overall picture that she conveys? He stands tall like the cedars of Lebanon, those tall great trees. And his mouth is most sweet. Again, it's focusing on his words and on his speech. And it culminates with that beautiful expression in verse 16 At the end of it, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. He wanted to know what makes him so wonderful. This is who he is. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Um, He is altogether desirable to her. Um, He is altogether desirable. He's the delight of her eyes. This is my beloved, she says. This is my darling. This is the first time she's called him that. This has been his word for her throughout the song. This is the first time it's her word for him. This is my friend. It's a wonderful expression, my, my darling. It, it's the explanation that these women were looking for. What makes him so great? Well, let me tell you, this is what makes him so great. This is who he is to me, altogether desirable, the delight of my eyes. Uh, The more she describes him, the more we find her using words that he used to describe her. She is being reminded of his love for her as she talks about her love for him. Um, And it brings something, it seems, to her realization in the dream. Because after she's done describing him to her, where they had said, well, you know, what makes him so great? They kind of say, okay, now we're sold. Right? Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? All right, if he's like that, we better go find him. Let's go find him. Where do you think he might be? And it's almost like this exchange and this description and this meditating on him in a lot of the ways that he has meditated on her sort of brings her to reality in the dream. Because all of a sudden she seems to know exactly where he is. Again, it's a strange kind of dialogue. You can see why people struggle with it. I'm out searching, I can't find him, and they say, well, where should we go look? Where could he be? And she said, well, I know exactly where he is. It's a dreamlike kind of thing. You ever have that in a dream where it suddenly breaks upon you that it's not really a dream anymore? You're kind of waking up to the reality and it strikes you, oh, this is a dream. 
Um, or maybe you've had a nightmare where you're having the nightmare and you, you wake up and realize, oh, this is only a dream. Um, the example of this that I'll never forget is I was at my brother's house once and I was having this dream that something was grabbing me. And I woke up and thought, oh, I'm glad it was just a dream. I realized I had woken up and I had just been dreaming something was grabbing me. And then I thought to myself, something is grabbing me. And it was my little niece who'd come in while I was sleeping and was pulling on my arm to wake me up so I could go read her a book. And not being used to having children wandering around, I was not used to being pulled at in my sleep. And so I remember distinctly feeling like, oh, good, it's just a dream. Nothing's grabbing me. And then I'm awake and thinking, something's grabbing me. Um, But I remember that initial, you know, okay, oh, it's just a dream. We've had that, haven't we, where you, you wake up and think, okay, Now I realize it's just a dream. She almost seems to wake up out of what she's been thinking and recognize the reality. That she knows exactly where he is. That this has only been a dream. And that she's safe and that everything is okay. I think that's where she comes in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. She realizes that her husband hasn't left her. He hasn't turned and walked away. He hasn't gone where she can't find him. He's exactly who he's always been, forever committed to her, and finding his delight in only her. He's where he always will be, finding pleasure in his garden, which is her his beloved bride. And in 6.3, she repeats what she'd said before with a kind of reversal. Uh, We've heard her say something like this before, um, that he grazes among the lilies. Uh, She said in Song of Solomon 2.16, my beloved is mine and I am his, he grazes among the lilies. And there she said that before she sent him away. Before she'd said, you know, the time is not right for love. But now it's as if she finds him in her mind and says this back. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine and he grazes among the lilies. She is his and he is hers and he is not going to leave her or forsake her. Um, Now when it comes to our human loves, things aren't always that easy. Our problems are not always in our minds And it can sometimes not be the easy matter of waking up and finding them over. Um, When two sinners are involved in any kind of relationship, troubles are bound to come. And sometimes they're minor and can be easily reconciled. Sometimes they are major and destructive. Sometimes we can be victims of other people's selfishness and sin. Sometimes we are the guilty party causing rifts by our own failures. And that's why it's such a comfort to know that we are in a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes to the relationship between Christ and his church, he's a husband that never fails his bride. That the perfection of Christ guarantees that the bond that he has forged with his people will not be broken. Because as his bride, his church is fickle. There are times that we are passionately on fire for the Lord, and there are times where we get out of step with the Spirit, and we grow cold in our affections, we begin to feel that passion fading and growing cold. Um, We begin to desperately search in our hearts and minds as if the Lord has left us, and we must run out to find Him. 
only to discover that despite all of our worries, his promise is sure. I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, our, our human relationships need a lot of wisdom. They need a lot of grace. They need a lot of humility. They need a lot of love. Um, and it's wonderful to have this relationship with our God that we don't need to worry about. There's a perfection there to how he loves his people uh, that's persistent even when we fail. And that's the good news of, of the relationship we have with our God. We never have to worry that Christ is going to leave us separated and alone. That he will always be faithful to his bride. And no matter what moments of self-love that we have and momentary lapses of our passion for him, um, we will never be left. We will never be forsaken. Because he will not leave us or forsake us, that's also what gives us hope for our human relationships. Um, we have a God who loves us, and part of the love that he showers upon his people is to help us with our love for one another. That's important in marriage to know that we are not in it alone. That's important for our church relationships as we try to relate with one another because we can be selfish, we can be self-loving, we can cause problems in the church, we can be victims of other people's selfishness. We can victimize people by our own selfishness. And that can go on and on as we think about various relationships. And what do we need to know then? We have a God who's committed to loving us. And that part of the love that he extends to us is to help us find grace. To help us show grace to one another. To fill us with his spirit that we might be more loving. Our hope for human relationships is because we have a God who's rich in mercy and grace, we can find hope in him to help mend what we break. Who can help us by his spirit to extend the kind of selfless love that we've been shown in Christ. Who didn't come and do these things because he needed to do them. Right? God was perfectly fine in that inter-Trinitarian relationship. He did not need other people to be admitted to it to have fellowship. God did not love us because he had some need in himself to find an object for his love. The triune God is perfectly suited to love himself in that relationship of persons. But despite the fact that that love is perfect and even beyond our conception to think about... He created a people that he might love. And that he's created the relationship in such a way that even though he does not need us, he loves us. And he provides for us what we need. That's our hope as sinners. That's our hope for relationships. That's our hope for living in this life. And it's a call for us when we find ourselves momentarily going insane and saying we really don't want God or not want, don't want what he has to offer us now, that we go and seek and look for him, that we draw near to him and meditate on his glory and we recover our first love for him. And when we do, what a wonderful thing it is to know that he's never gone anywhere. Whatever we've felt in terms of alienation and isolation from our God, he has still been just as close as he's always been. Because he will never leave us or forsake us. And he will be with us always to the very end of the age. What a wonderful God we have. 
who will never leave his people and will always be there loving us and caring for us. Thanks be to God for Christ and his faithfulness to sinners like us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word and for the reminder of how to love. And as we've thought about this song, there are many fears that it explores, many failures that it reveals to us. And it reminds us of how many ways things can go wrong, that when they're at their best, they're delightful, but they can be broken and shattered. And Lord, how thankful we are to know that you are a God who is for us, that you love us. And out of your great love for us, you give us hope for our relationships, that when we, when we have things go well, when things are going well in our relationships, we, may we never forget to praise you for being the God that has built them. And when things go poorly, we, may we never fail to look to you for help, for you've promised the grace and help of your Holy Spirit, that we would find grace to help in our time of need, and may it drive us to your throne of grace to help us. And when we go there, may we be reminded that you have never left us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. The promise of your son is sure, that he will be with us always to the very end of the age. And his presence with us gives us all the hope for our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. So build up our families, Lord, we pray. Watch over us. Forgive us our sins, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.